At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. A recent headline in uh, the October 4th edition of the U.S. News and World Report read this, Australian Rules Essendon CEO quits after one day in the job over church links. The article would go on to discuss how Andrew Thorburn, who only a day earlier had been appointed the chief executive officer of the Australian Rules Football Club, Essendon, had resigned his position due to backlash that he had received. What had Thorburn done that had been caused such an outrage that would ultimately force him to resign? Well, he was the chairman of the board of his church, City on a Hill, an Anglican church in Melbourne, Australia. The church previously, actually years before this moment, had expressed in teaching opposition to both same-sex marriage and abortion. These old statements were surfaced in response to Thorburn's hiring, and out of them the club then sought his resignation. The president of the club was quoted in the article as saying, the board made clear that despite these not being the views that Andrew Thorburn has expressed personally, and that were also made prior to him taking up his role as chairman, he couldn't continue to serve in his dual roles at the club and the church. The choice was clear. Either Thorburn was to resign from his church and the board he sat on there and decry their values, or he was to resign from the club. Thorburn ultimately made the decision to resign for the club. And after his resignation, he said in a statement, quote, that it was clear to him his faith was not tolerated or permitted in the public square, at least by some and perhaps by many. I remember hearing this story several weeks ago and thinking how much it highlighted the tension that I think many followers of Jesus are wrestling with in our kind of current culture and climate. I think what we see in this moment isn't just related to Australia, but often all of us as we navigate an increasingly secular West and what it means to be a Christian in our kind of current day. While we might not face the same sort of high-profile challenges like someone like Andrew Thorburn might, many of us still face regularly the challenge of how we're to understand our faith and live it out in a culture and society that seems to only be increasing in its hostility towards Christ in his ways. And I think we all kind of feel and are maybe put in positions or will be if we haven't already, where we're forced to choose between the way of Jesus and the way of the culture and society around us. And I think many of us are asking the question, what can actually help us navigate these sort of challenges? I'm sure he asked that question. And I know many of us ask and will continue to ask these questions in our day. Well, the good news is that Jesus actually knew that his followers would face these sorts of challenges, not just in our day, but in any day and age in those that would follow him until his return. And so in his last teaching prior to his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus actually took time to 
prepare his disciples for the reality that they will face as followers of him in the midst of the world that is not always welcoming to who he is and what he's about. We've been in this series, The Followers Trail Guides, where Jesus has been preparing his disciples for life when he isn't present until his return. And we've been, or find ourselves right in kind of the middle of the second section of it. And Jesus begins to engage and help us think through what does it mean to actually live in the midst of the culture? And what he wants to help us see today from our text, and that I hope you'll see as we unpack it together, is that knowing our opposition and our support actually can help us stay on the way when we face those challenges. All right, let, let's jump in and hear these words from Jesus again, and we'll kind of unpack this together as we go. John 15, 18 says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In order for us to understand a little bit of the direction that Jesus takes here, because his words can seem kind of startling, we, we kind of need to re remind ourselves of the flow of teaching that he's been engaging in this section. So these verses are found in kind of the second major section of Jesus' farewell discourse. The first section in chapter 14, Jesus spends time comforting his disciples, that he's going to prepare a place for them, that he's going to provide a helper for them in the midst of his absence. In chapter 15, Jesus in his second section begins to prepare his disciples for the reality of what they are going to be called to do in light of his absence. He begins this section with the key statement, I am the true vine. Everything in this section kind of flows from that reality. And we, we looked at that statement a couple weeks ago to see that when Jesus is saying that, what he's ultimately telling his disciples is that he is the true Israel and the one through whom God is going to fulfill his mission of filling the earth with his glory and redeeming that which is lost. And that, excuse me, his followers have a role to play in that. That we are the branches that ultimately the vine will bear fruit through for God's kingdom and his mission. And so in light of that reality, Jesus, at the beginning of this section, calls his disciples really to do two things. The first thing we looked at a couple weeks ago, he calls them to abide in him. That you and I are meant to live in relationship in which we remain and abide in connection and relationship with Jesus continually, ongoing. The second thing then he then calls them to do, which... Pastor Joel did a fabulous job unpacking for us last week, is that we're to love one another. That that's the mark of the community and what it means to live in connection with the vine and how the branches live with one another. The first call is how we are to relate to Christ. The second call is how we relate to one another within the Christian community. And in many ways, those commands become the foundation for the Christian community as we live and seek to fulfill God's mission in us in light of Jesus' absence. But Jesus knows that if we seek to abide in him and if we seek to love one another as a community, that that's going to bring us into some tension with the world. And so he begins to highlight the reality. And in doing so, he calls his disciples to a third thing. So we're to abide, we're to love, but here the key command in verse 18 is that we are to know, to know, to know the reality of our opposition and know the reality of our support. Jesus wants us to know two things and we're gonna unpack them one at a time. The first thing he wants us to know is that those that hate him persecuted him and because of that, they ultimately will persecute us. Jesus begins, if the world hates you, 
This statement is not an assumption, this, or sorry, this statement is an assumption of truth. This isn't Jesus saying, well, maybe. Actually, by the way he's phrasing the question, he's helping his followers assume, ultimately, you will be hated by the world. When Jesus uses the phrase, the world, he's talking about the collective system of humanity that's under the domain of the Satan and is opposed to God and his rightful king, Jesus. That, that, that's what the world, it's the collective system of rebellious humanity. It's important for us to note because when Jesus uses the world, he's not just pointing to a specific group of people, but he's referring to the collective rebellion that humanity finds itself in and the way in which it stands opposed to God and his king, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be surprised by the hatred of the world. He doesn't want them to be caught off guard. Hey, as you go to live and abide in me, as you go to love one another, don't expect that things are just going to go well for you. In fact, you can't anticipate the opposite. They are not going to go well for you. The world is not going to like you. We have all sorts of different reactions to the story I used to open our teaching today, but the one we shouldn't have a reaction is, is surprise. It shouldn't shock us that there are times where Christians are treated this way, even in ways of rejection and opposition. But why the hate? Why can we anticipate that there will be such opposition? Well, Jesus is clear, because they hated him. The opposition that we experience in the world as the Christian community, and speaking of us collectively here, is really a secondary opposition or a secondary hatred. The world stands opposed to Jesus, therefore they're opposed to those that associate most directly and closely with him. Now you might be tempted to think as we look in our culture, well I don't think people really hate Jesus. Most people that we probably engage, would, we'd probably say, I don't know if they hate him. They just seem indifferent towards him. We, we kind of live in an age of like, hey, you, you, you do you, I do, you know, we kind of just believe what you want to believe. It's all good. And it seems like indifferent. So these words can then feel foreign. What, what are you talking about? Hate, Jesus. That, that, that doesn't seem to be the way people are. But here, here's a key thing that I think Jesus would point us to. People are only indifferent to Jesus inasmuch they lack ignorance of his rightful claim as king over their lives. Try and see how different they are when they're presented that Christ calls them to surrender to his word and his ways, that they are called to obedience to him as the rightful king of the world. When that happens and people are confronted with the truth of God, indifference often moves to opposition. That in our quest for our own glory, we will stand opposed to anything that challenges us to surrender our lives under Christ. Commentator Leslie Newbegin, who served for many years as a missionary in India and then came back and was a pastor in the UK for a number of years, comments on this passage this way. He says, The love which binds Jesus to the Father and the disciples to Jesus is the total denying of the self to the point of death. It is therefore rejected totally by the world where the fullness of life is seen as something to be grasped. Self-assertion must necessarily hate and reject self-denial. The world is not neutral when it comes to Jesus. They stand opposed to his rightful, true claims. And therefore, because we belong to Jesus, and as Jesus makes clear, he chose us, don't mess 
that order up. He chose us and brought us into his community. We don't belong to the world anymore. We don't belong to that system, that collective system, and stands in rebellion against God. Jesus makes it clear, if we were submitted to the world, then the world would love us. They'd celebrate us. They'd be for us. But we are not of the world. In fact, Jesus makes it clear. We are in the world. He leaves his disciples to remain in the world, but we are not of it. We belong to a different kingdom and system, and those kingdoms are at odds. And if we find ourselves in a place where we are loved by the world, then it probably means we've moved away in our closeness to Christ. Therefore, what Jesus reminds us is that we can anticipate that we're going to be hated. We're going to be rejected, that there is going to be opposition. They do not like us because they do not like him and his claim as king. Not only that, they will persecute us because they've rejected God. Look what Jesus goes on to verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Now, Jesus has already used this in his teaching. If you go back to chapter 13, he actually says the same phrase in relation to calling his disciples to wash one another's feet. In that case, it was the positive. He was saying, as I've served you, you're not greater than me, and you should serve one another. Here, he's trying to frame it, same thing. As I've been rejected, you're not greater than me. You can expect that they'll ultimately reject you. That we can expect the same treatment as Christ. What is that? Well, he, he goes to highlight them. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they stand in opposition to me, they're going to stand in opposition to you. There's not going to be a change there. You're not greater than I am. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. What Jesus reminds us is as the community goes out and proclaims the good news of his life, death, and resurrection for salvation to the world, that there will be some that will respond to that word, who will keep it, who will join. And similarly, that those that join Jesus, there will be those that join our community and follow and submit to God's word. But then there will be those that will persecute, that will stand in opposition, that will fight against the goodness and cause of Christ in the world. Why would they do this? Well, Jesus makes it clear. All these things they will do, verse 21, on account of my name, right? My reality, who I am, what I am seeking to bring to the world. And here's this key reason, because they do not know him who sent me. The reason given here is not just ignorance when he says they do not know, it's rejection. They do not know God because they're in rebellion and therefore they've rejected his anointed saving king, Jesus. And what Jesus goes on to remind them is that they don't have any excuse because they've rejected him. Look at 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Now, Let's just clarify a little bit of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that if he never came, never did miracles, never proclaimed the truth of God's word, that people would not be guilty of sin. Scripture is clear that we are guilty from sin from the very beginning because of the fall of our father Adam and our mother Eve. And because of that, every human is born in and under sin. So Jesus is not saying they wouldn't have sin. What he's saying is that their rejection of him 
the one who's come to save them from their sin, has removed all excuse for their reality. And because of that, they are still in their sin. Maybe you can think of it this way. Imagine that you were sick with a really deadly disease. I don't know what that disease is, and I won't put one in your mind, but you can think. Imagine you were sick with a really deadly disease, but someone discovered a cure for that disease. And they come to you, and they say, hey, I know you've been suffering with this. I know you're moving towards death, but here's the deal. We just discovered a cure, and if you do X, Y, and Z, take this pill, get this shot, whatever it is, you can actually be cured. And at that point, you say, no, nah, I don't want it. For whatever reason, I don't, try, I don't, that's, I, I don't want the cure. Well, it's not that at that point you suddenly then get the disease. You've already had the disease. But when the cure is offered and rejected, you cement yourself in the reality of that disease and experience the full effects of its consequences. And therefore, you don't have an excuse. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Humanity sick with sin. I've come to save them. I've come to die for them, to cover your sin, to rescue from that place of guilt and shame and bring you into eternal relationship with the Father. But in rejecting me, you've left yourself with no excuse. You've cemented yourself in the place of consequences for your sin. And scripture is clear, the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. And so what Jesus wants to help them understand is, yes, I've come, but they stand in even greater guilt because they've heard the good news of me and still have rejected me. Why? Because they hate me, and they hate my Father also, he says. Our treatment of Jesus ultimately, according to Jesus, only reflects our relationship to God. The way you relate to Jesus is the way in which you relate to the true God who has made all things. This is why it's good for us to center our understanding for ourselves and where people are at with God by looking at where they are with Christ. Lots of people believe in God. Lots of people claim God. Lots of athletes every, every touchdown say, thank God. But there is a difference between God and God as revealed in Christ. And what Jesus is saying, the way they respond to me is the way they respond to the true God. And it shows whether or not we love God or whether or not we stand in opposition to him. Whether we surrender to his kingdom or whether we seek to oppose it, whether we're part of the world or whether we're part of Jesus' people. But at the end of the day, what Jesus wants us to realize is that we can anticipate that the way in which he was treated, we will be treated. And that we will suffer in the way in which we follow our king. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this, Suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther reckons suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. A CEO being fired for being on the board of his church a teacher being suspended for giving a student a Bible, a football coach who's put on leave for leading out a prayer on the field at the end of a game, a fireman getting fired for self-publishing a book teaching Christian morality for his church, a Marine court-martialed for having a Bible verse on her desk, being attacked because you support an organization that helps or cares for pregnant women and encourage them to seek other options, Christian groups like InterVarsity that have been kicked off campus, 
being slandered for affirming the Christian ethic when it comes to sex and sexuality. These are some of the realities of just what it means to be a Christian in our work culture and what it might mean as we continue on. And even then, our plight in the West is light compared to what the majority of Christians face in much of the world, where they see greater hostility and greater opposition to who they are as a community and to what it means to follow Jesus. And while we might lament those realities, we should not be surprised by them. True Christianity will always run contrary to the world, and we should expect the same treatment as our Lord. We follow him, and he calls us and even teaches us that this will be the case. Now, at this point, you might be thinking like, what the heck, Jesus? Like, if that's what I can expect on earth, man, like, how, how do you expect me to faithfully follow you in light of all these sorts of challenges? And especially in the context of this, these disciples are going, you're leaving, and this is the good news you're leaving with us? Like, this is what we can expect? How am I supposed to abide in you, love one another, bear the fruit of the kingdom when I stand in a place that will oppose those very things in me? Right? Well, Jesus encourages them in a second way to know as they seek to live in the midst of the world. So even though the haters persecute Jesus and they will persecute you, Jesus promises that the helper that he will send will promote Jesus and he'll actually help us too. Look where he shifts again in verse 26. But... When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus reminds them once again of the Greek word is the paraclete, which we talked about a few weeks ago. It's Jesus's word that he uses here to describe the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And the word paraclete in the Greek is kind of, it's hard to wrap our entire English uh, language around what the word means. Because on one sense, it can mean advocate or counselor. It can mean helper, right? It's somebody who comes along and provides assistance and help to someone in need. And Jesus has already spoken previously that in his departure, he's going to send the Holy Spirit as the helper to help us be and live as a sort of people and community that he's calling us to be and live in light of his ascension. And so Jesus, once again, reminds them, yes, you're going to face this opposition, but I'm sending you the helper. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. I know this might sound intimidating, but I'm going to send someone who's going to lead the way so that you are not just left on your own. Jesus identifies him as the spirit of truth. He's the one who brings God's truth and God's reality into the world. And ultimately, Jesus reminds them, he will lead the way in bearing witness about who Jesus is as the true king and the true savior. Ultimately, that comes through Jesus' followers. But what Jesus wants to remind them is that they can take courage because the Spirit will actually be the primary agent at work to bear witness to the truth of Jesus. What Jesus says here is, listen, I'm not just leaving you on your own. I'm not just saying, hey, all right, go figure this out. you got to do it. Actually, I'm doing something different. I'm going to give you the Spirit, and the Spirit is actually going to be the one to lead you and how you live as a witness for me despite the opposition that you will face. The Spirit's work in this section is primary. Ours is secondary. 
he is the primary witness, we come alongside as the secondary witnesses. And he works through us to make much of Jesus in our world. He's the agent of witness. Notice, Jesus isn't saying, hey, you're going to go face opposition. Now you've got to go figure it out in your own power and strength. What he says is the Spirit is coming to bear witness. And therefore, you can trust that God will work through your circumstances, through the challenges that you face to make much of who he is and to bear witness through your life for the sake of his kingdom and mission. So you can trust even in persecution that the Spirit is working to point people towards Christ. The Spirit is primary and we're secondary. Again, hear the words of Leslie Newbegin. I think they're helpful here. He says, The promise to the community of the disciples is not that they will have the Spirit at their disposal to help them in their work of proclamation. That misunderstanding has profoundly distorted the missionary action of the church and provided the action for a kind of missionary triumphalism of which we are right to be ashamed. What he's essentially saying is there, there was a, a way in which we operated, unfortunately, a lot of times in mission that tried to seek to do mission in our strength. And so mission was about our victory, not about our suffering. It was about how we make things right and comfortable instead of how do we lay down our lives for the sake of others so they can know Jesus. And what Newbegin's reminding us is when we flip the order in this passage, when we make witness about us and then the Spirit, that's what happens. But what Jesus is saying is, witness is about the Spirit. We then follow his lead. That's why he continues, the promise is that exactly in this tribulation and humiliation, right, in the midst of persecution, the mighty Spirit of God will bear his own witness to the crucified Jesus as Lord and giver of life. When we realize the order, what we realize is our lives, when surrendered to Christ, become a vehicle. And even our suffering and persecution becomes a vehicle through which the Spirit will make much of God. If anything, when we've looked over the history of the church for 2,000 years, it is often where suffering increases the most that we see some of the most mighty works of God among his people to bear witness to the truth and reality of Jesus. Therefore, our job, as Jesus says earlier, is to abide in Jesus and to love one another. That's the work. And then know that as we do that, it might bring us into conflict. It might cause us to lose jobs. It might force us to face opposition. But God will work even through that to make much of Christ and bear witness to him in the world. Now, let's be clear. This shouldn't lead us to some sort of passivity when it comes to our witness. This shouldn't lead us to some point where we say, oh, well, the Spirit's got it, so I don't have to do anything. No, that's not the point. Actually, it should embolden our witness by following the Spirit's lead into the places God calls us and then trusting that as we do that, he's going to work through us, regardless if that's a positive experience or a negative experience. Whether that means when you share your faith with someone that they say, tell me more, or they say, get out of my face and don't ever tell me again. That we can still trust in that moment that if we're following the lead of the Spirit, he's working to bear witness to Christ. Therefore, the way we respond is to seek in wherever God leads us and calls us to be faithful to follow the Spirit. When you step into the moments of your life, maybe it's your work, maybe it's where you work out, maybe it's at a family gathering, do you ever take a moment to just be attentive to how the Spirit might want to use you in that moment? 
Do you go in with your agenda? Or do you stop and say, Holy Spirit, you're the lead. You're the one who's bearing witness to Jesus. I just want to be open however you want to use me in this space. I just want to be open to use the things of my life so that you can make much of Christ. You see, when we do that, then we can step into any moment, even the worst moments, and still say, hey, I'm going to try to make this about Jesus. I'm going to try to follow and point people towards him. The Spirit takes the lead and provides the help we need to be faithful witnesses in the midst of the world. But Jesus doesn't end his passage here. Even though the chapter ends, it's not where this section ends. Remember, in the original letters, there were no chapters and verses. Those were added in the 15th century as a way to sell Bibles. They're not bad. They help us reference them. But It's not like Jesus' thought ends at the end of 15. It actually continues through verse 4. And what Jesus does is that he helps you see the helper. And the way he promotes Jesus is he wants to come back and say, hey, don't forget, this is going to be true, even though it might get worse. Look, Look what he says. Verse 16, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things, here's his reason again, because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you. So he says it again, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You see, Jesus makes it clear. Yes, we have help, but it's still going to be rough. But again, Come back to what we said at the beginning and what he said. When we know our opposition, when we know our support, it helps us stay in the way even when things get rough. Brothers and sisters, don't be fooled. The hour is coming and is here where we will experience persecution for our witness to Christ. Not just our faith, our witness. The reality is that the last several hundred years in the West where Christianity has experienced a prizing in culture is actually the minority of how Christianity is experienced when you look both globally and historically. Even to this day, the majority of Christians that will gather for worship on the Lord's Day will gather in places where there is direct opposition from their governments, from their communities, from their people, to their gathering and worshiping Jesus. We're the minority. And yet we, we are stirred because we see an increase in opposition to Christ. But what we need to see is Jesus said, this is going to be the case. You are going. Everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted, Paul tells Timothy. That will happen. That's a promise. You want to live faithfully as a witness to Jesus, at some point you're going to face opposition and persecution. Jesus is trying to say, don't be surprised by that. Don't let it catch you off guard. But remember what I said. Remember what I said, that I told you that this would be the case. And that I told you I'd give you the Spirit so that when it happens, what? You don't fall away. So that you'd remain faithful. When we're drawn into those moments, we need to go back. When we hear those stories like we hear of the CEO in Australia, we need to go back and say, this isn't surprising. Jesus told us would be the case, but he actually gave us what we need to remain faithful in the midst of this. And therefore, we can continue to live as witnesses. So, as we kind of wrap up 
our text this morning, I think one of the things that I have often found to be encouraging and just reminding ourselves of what Jesus has provided for us as we seek to be faithful people is to be reminded from the words of others who have walked through challenge, who have experienced persecution, and yet continue to call the church to faithful witness. I read a book a few years ago that I would highly recommend in relationship to the challenge the church has faced in persecution around the world. It's a book called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. Nick was a missionary for many years in Africa and was kind of began to see some incredible things that God was doing among believers in places where they experienced the worst persecution. And so him and his wife began to travel and collect stories and interview Christians who were under persecution or who had experienced persecution. And he writes this book kind of as a way of his own faith journey, how that encouraged his faith, but also as a way it can encourage our faith as well. One of the stories Nick tells in the book is the story of a man he names Stoyan, who was a pastor for many years in Eastern Europe during the height of communism and faced extreme opposition for his faith in Jesus. Stoyan actually grew up the son of a pastor's kid, and when um, Eastern Europe fell, um, his dad faced incredible opposition to the point where he was imprisoned for many years because of his faith in Jesus and his refusal to deny it. Stoyan talks about visiting his father even as a young child, but watching his mother and his father continue to bear witness to Christ. He actually tells the story of one day visiting his dad in jail, barely recognizing him because he was so malnourished and weak. And while they were visiting him, his mom tried to smuggle his dad a New Testament under a hat just so he would have the word of God in prison. But as she did that, a guard actually saw it and began to threaten them and scream at his mom and dad and say, don't you know that I could kill you right now for that? He recalls his mom standing back and saying, you might kill me, but you can't stop me because of Christ. I'm paraphrasing that. <laughs> but, but he saw a faithfulness in his parents and that continued on in him as Stoyan became a pastor, but continued to face opposition himself. He began to do a work of spreading Christian writings to encourage believers in Eastern Europe, but even then faced imprisonment himself for his witness to Christ in that place. But he carried on. And Nick tells a story in the book, and, and I won't ruin it, but go and read the chapter. It's incredible what this man experienced, but his continued faithfulness to Christ. But there's a moment at the end that, that's just kind of always rung in my soul and been challenging to me. Nick writes towards the end of his kind of sharing all of the hardship that Stoyan faced and the way God still intervened in those places. He writes this, he says, Despite decades of extreme hardship, Stoyan's stories were joyful and hopeful. He was convinced that people flocked to Christ in greater numbers during difficult days of persecution because that's when they could recognize how God sustains and strengthens his followers through times of trouble. As my interview with Stoyan drew to a close, I knew that it was going to take a long time to process the wisdom, insight, and conclusions that this one man had drawn from his life treasure of faith experience. When I mentioned that to Stoyan and thanked him for his time, he smiled modestly and replied, I thank God and I take great joy in knowing that I was suffering in prison in my country so that you, Nick, could be free to share Jesus in Kentucky. Those words pierced my soul, Ripken writes. 
I looked Stoyan straight in the eyes. Oh no, I protested. No, you're not going to do that. You're not going to put that on me. That debt is so large that I can never repay you. Soyan stared right back at me and said, son, that's the debt of the cross. He leaned forward and poked me in the chest with his finger as he continued, don't you steal my joy. I took great joy that I was suffering in my country so that you could be free to witness in yours. Then he raised his voice in a prophet-like challenge that I knew would live with me forever. Don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. That is the witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said we would face opposition. But when we look at the testimony of what he says and the testimony of the church that's walked through it, we're reminded we're still called to witness. Let's not give up our witness in freedom and let's continue it whatever opposition we face. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.